Just briefly, I'm going to recap a little bit of last week. And so, because I want this graphic to be uh, something we become very familiar with, because it will help summarize and, and, and encapsulate our approach to spirituality, Christian spirituality, obviously, in particular, and our approach to what it means to grow in our faith as followers of Jesus. So we looked at last week this, this set of verses, and we're going to look at the others this week, but we looked at last week, uh, verse tw verses 28 and 29, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make no known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, as we meditated on that last week and we continue to meditate on the future, I want us to remember that the goal of Christian spirituality should be an ever-deepening understanding and experience of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sometimes when I've offered critiques at some of the dogma and theology that was uh, indoctrinated into my mind at a very young age, um, sometimes I have uh, done that with a little bit too much enthusiasm or critique of my own experience and have come across as maybe I was critiquing other people's experiences. Th that is not at all my intention. Um, but, but what I want to simply highlight is there are two different ways of experiencing and expressing our faith. And we need to be aware of which of the two ways is influencing us even if it's on a subconscious level, we need to be aware of those ideas. And uh, I, I do believe that there's a space for education and theology, particularly the history of theological thought, which unfortunately evangelicals in general tend to be woefully ignorant of, but it's really helpful to understand how the things that we think and believe and assume they simply weren't the things that all Christians at all times thought and believed and assumed. Th these ideas happen over time, and we need to be aware of how those transitions happen. So, so, so one of the things that I think that we should retool is our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. Because I can sit in church for 30 years and fill up notebooks full of information and still not be able to control the resentment that's been developed in my heart over 20 years of marriage that I didn't understand how to communicate very well, for example. Or I can alienate my children through some kind of blind commitment to a piece of dogma that was passed down to me that I've enforced upon them that goes contrary to how the spirit is liberating them to think creatively and outside of the box, but I can stand by that dogma and harm those relationships, harm the intimacy with the people that I love the most if I make information my understanding of discipleship. And so, and so, so, Ultimately, the goal of any information or any church activity is to bring you to Christ. Evangelicals think that discipleship is providing people with answers. And I just want to go on official record and say, that is not my paradigm for ministry or pastoring. The goal of the local church, I do not believe, is to provide answers, but to point people to the answer. 
and then equip them with a rhythm of life that allows them to be their own priest, not be mediated through anyone else, but to be their own priest to go to that answer because that answer isn't a concept. It's a living person. It's the living Christ, and he dwells within you, and he longs to walk with you in the cool of the day and provide you with all the direction and wisdom that you need to be healthy and whole, both in mind and body and in spirit, and to empower you to then invite other people into the circle of that wholeness and that healing as they are delivered from their brokenness. But that only happens if you don't need a podcast, a book, or a teacher in your hip pocket, because you don't need them because Jesus is always with you. But if we model discipleship in such a way that teaches us to be dependent on gaining information rather than dependent on listening to the present voice of the presence of God in our own souls, then we have made a great error because we are sending out disciples of men, not disciples of Christ. And I will not do that. I do not want to participate in that. I did that for a long time and it is toxic and dangerous. That is not what I want to do with the last half of my life. And so we have to understand that what Christian spirituality is intended for, the goal of it, is an ever-deepening understanding and experience of Christ in you, the hope of glory. My friends, we are not warriors of an ideology. We are witnesses to a person, the living Christ. And the living Christ takes us out of the position of a cultural warrior and puts us in the position of a servant of all. And that the fruit of those two directions look very, very different. And so what we highlighted is this idea of Christ in you could be illustrated with this simple illustration. Yeah, so, so we have God who is many and yet he is one. He's justice, love, community, mercy, Uh, Love is at the center. John says that God actually is love. It's not just an attribute of God. It is the core nature of who he is. But it expresses himself in justice, wisdom, community, and mercy. And the incarnation that we celebrate in December is the incarnation of God. God clothed in flesh. Behold the Godhead see. Held the incar- or behold the incarnate deity. That's this idea. We're going to lift that up just a few minutes. So, so we, what we see is that God, God is incarnated in Christ. That's the first part of the story. It crescendos at Christmas. But then when we begin to get into Pentecost and the book of Acts and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the way it took a while, but the way the Holy Spirit moves the body of Christ out into the rest of the world, then what we can see is this. One way that we could communicate it, not the only way, and if this is not saying everything that could be said, but one way we could communicate it is that as Christ was the incarnation of God, so his followers are the incarnation of Christ in every generation. Because what the Bible teaches is a new covenant of salvation that is not from external authority, but comes from within. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And, and, And we looked at that scripture of the new covenant that said, in those days, No one is going to have to teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord, because they all will know me. Why? Because I am going to write my laws on their hearts. 
I am going to take away the heart of, a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. So much so that the apostle John is going to go in to say, you don't really need anybody to teach you because his anointing or his presence teaches you. Now, again, there's other things that we can say about the teaching ministry of the church, but we need to listen to what John is trying to communicate there. What we need is Jesus, and the problem is we enter this faith understanding our need for Jesus, but we quickly move from Jesus to other sources in which we put our hope, and we need to be aware of that because we're called to be incarnations of Christ. In this sense, the return of Christ happens in every generation when the body of Christ shows up in the way we're called to show up in a very, very real sense. We become that tangible expression of the living Christ, just as Christ was that tangible expression of the living God. These ideas are saturated all throughout your New Testament scriptures. They are crystal clear. The only way we don't see them is if at a young age or an age when we were less informed, someone tells us how we're supposed to read it and then reinterpret it in light of some sort of theological system that did not get codified sometimes up to 1,500 years after the original scriptures were written. So it's fine if you want to extrapolate from the scriptures, but you should not take your extrapolations, layer them on top of the scripture, and then force the scripture to say what we've eventually developed over long over millennia of debates and discussions about how to understand these things. I hope that makes sense in in a way that's not offensive. So, as we look at this, let's look at this next set of verses. Verse 28 and 29. This is Paul speaking, and he says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, and what I am saying is an expert of Christian ideology is not the same thing as being mature in Christ. It can serve that goal. I'm not belittling it, but ultimately that's not the goal. The goal is for us to be presented as mature in Christ, which means by nature of that word mature is that It is a process, and that process includes learning and education, but that process is also bound by a set of variables over which we have no control. And just because we might wish someone who is 12 could have the maturity of a 40-year-old, we can never force that to happen. It requires time and their journey and their God's response to their unique journey working within him within them to create in them to be the people he's called them to be. We can't force that. We can't control how they interpret the things that we're saying. There are so many variables that you can't control if the goal is maturity. You just have to trust. And the only way that you get through immaturities is being willing to be patient, graceful, and relationally connected. And so he says, but this is what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is maturity in Christ. And then he says, I labor for this, striving with all his strength that works powerfully in me. 
So if we take these two verses, they might be organized like this. Paul highlights an action. What is the action that he highlights? The action is we proclaim Christ through warning and teaching, okay? What's the goal of proclaiming Christ through warning and teaching? The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ, okay? And what is the source of this ministry? Cleverness? Charisma, a brilliant mind, studying at the best schools, at the feet of the best seminarians. And that's not the source. All these things can be used. They can be means. I am not condemning or critiquing them as means, but they're not the source. What does Paul say that the source of the action of proclaiming Christ through warning and teaching for the purpose of presenting when everyone mature of Christ, the source is his strength that works powerfully in me. His strength that works powerfully in me. And that is not a metaphor for going to seminary. It means that the presence of God works within me and that is the source from which I minister and serve from within to without. That is the spirituality of the New Testament. It is based in the idea of being transformed, not the idea of being conformed. But unfortunately, the other model is all about external conformity. Here's all the things we all have to believe. And the more you believe these core tenets, the more you're in, the less you believe, the more you're on the periphery. And if you don't acknowledge them at all, then you're just out. Because all about conformity, this is what we believe, this is how we dress, this is how we dress at the pool, this is how we dress at dinner, and this is the only kind of music we listen to. And it, like if you conform to all these things in our group, but the principle of the New Testament spirituality isn't conformity. It's transformation. And when you're transformed, you simply don't need rules. You just live in accordance to that transformed nature that you've been given as a gift. And so then, instead of it being encapsulated with terms like grit and discipline, it's more like breathing in and out. I breathe in Christ and not present Christ. That's what New Testament spirituality looks like. So what I wanted to do today is even though the order is the action, the goal, and the source, I want to reverse that outline and look at the source, the goal, and the action. And that was going to be what we intended to do today. Today, we're just going to look at the source, the source his strength that works powerfully in me. That's a good statement, isn't it? I like that. It's really clear, concise. His strength, I think if you have another translation, it might say his power that works in me. I think those are all great words. But it is interesting to dig down to the source of the original term that Paul used. And the source, and the term that Paul uses is the word energia or energeia or something like that, but please forgive me. Um, I, uh, you know, I was going to make a joke about my alma mater, but I won't. Alma mater. See, that's how we talk about in Lone Grove. Um, but, uh, oh, I did it. Slept anyway. Uh, 
Uh, okay, so this energy. Now, can any of you great scholars and those of you who are words that are really into etymology, can you guess what English word this word uh, influences? One more time, please. All right, all right. Did you say? Yes, energy. It's the word energy, and really that's what Paul says. According to his energy that works so powerfully within me. It's pronounced strength, but its usage is working, action, productive work, or activity. Now look at this from our Words Helps study. In the New Testament, it is confined to superhuman activity. In other words, when Paul says the source of my ministry is his power working in me or his energy working in me, Paul is unapologetically saying that he is a mystic, that he believes in having a spiritual encounter with the presence of God. That is such that he is equipped with power and energy that is not organic to himself alone but it is a power and an energy that comes from another source, which is the energy of God. However, it is organic because instead of that energy getting worked from without to within, it works from within to without. And so God is so much a part of Paul's life that it is God's energy that gets manifested through the ministry of Paul. In fact, if you go over and spend some time in Galatians, Paul will say that I don't even live anymore. The, the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. When he bears witness to his testimony in Galatians 1 or 2, it may be Galatians 2, he doesn't say that there was a day when God revealed Christ to me. That is not the wording that he uses. What he says was there was a day when God revealed Christ in me. He doesn't say that was the day Christ was in me. He just says that was the day it was revealed that Christ was in me. And we looked a little bit more at that principle last week. So this word is divine energy. This typically refers to God's energy which transitions the believer from point to point in his plan, accomplishing his definition of progress. Now, I just want to take a moment because I had someone very, uh, who cares about me, a dear friend, point out, said, I let them look at the sermon notes, and they were like, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, they're really close to me, so they're really honest. Um, but this word energy, that sounds weird. In fact, that sounds new agey. Well, why are you using that word energy? Because it has the potential of miscommunication and it has the potential of being misunderstood. And I said, I do respect that. I really, really do. But I just don't think that we should abdicate God's truth as being the excl exclusive terminology of other ideologies. Because I'm using energy because that's what the scripture says. In its original, that's literally what it says, is that it's, the, it's participating in the energy of God. 
Now, my hope in clarifying that is not that you think I'm some kind of weird New Age uh, guru, unless you want to pay me a lot of money to open a compound or something, then we can talk, I suppose. Um, but I'm joking. Um, but it, it, it is just to say that we really want to listen to what the Scripture's saying. Because to me, it hits me different. Like words like the power of the Spirit, power from on high, they have so much Christian baggage attached to them that it hits me different when I'm confronted. But spiritual growth is participating with the energy of God. That's what Paul was doing. That was his source, the energy of God that works in him. And now here's where I think it really matters. And I think evangelicals haven't had this conversation as much as we need to. Moral growth and spiritual growth are not the same thing. Moral growth and spiritual growth are two very different pursuits. And the reason why we need to highlight that is because moral growth does not necessarily result in spiritual growth. However, spiritual growth will always produce the result of moral growth. But moral growth is a fruit of the work of the Spirit. It is not it is not the goal we're giving ourselves to. But if it's strictly moral growth, hey, I can do that. I'll just pick up some Marcus Aurelius, some Epictetus. I'll just read the great wisdom of the Greek philosophers. I will master that as a way of life, and I will begin to ascend the ladder of moral perfection, judging all of you that I'll look back and can see behind me. But I'm called to a different vocation. I'm called to allow my moral growth to be the fruit of my spiritual growth. That's where I'm called to focus. That's where I'm called to hone in. Moral growth can happen through intellectual development and self-improvement. And again, I'm not saying I'm opposed to those things. I like to read self-improvement books. I posted one on Facebook, that, two on Facebook that I'm reading this week, and I love them. But I also understand their limitations. And I understand that where they're supposed to operate in the overall scheme of things. Moral growth can happen through intellectual development and self-improvement. Spiritual growth happens by cooperating with God's energy. That's the only way I grow spiritually. It is learning a cooperation with the presence of the Spirit, power from on high, if you like that better. But it simply means I learn to cooperate with the energy of God. And how do we cooperate with God's energy. It's really simple. Galatians 5 tells us we cooperate with the energy of God simply by keeping in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. There, there are a lot of books that can help you become a better partner to your spouse. And if you want to email me, I'm happy to share with you the ones I've found the most helpful. But what all those books can't do is force me to confront my selfishness in the moment when I'm getting ready to say something belittling and once again contribute to the breaking down of my partner's emotional health. Those books won't prevent me from doing that. But you know what can? When the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart and says, son, don't go there. It is time for you to stop talking and you and I need to take a walk. 
The Spirit can do that. And in that walk, he walks with me like he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and he gives me his heart, and he speaks his wisdom. And he says, why didn't you just quote page 49 of that new self-help marriage book you're reading? Well, now that you mentioned it, I probably could have thought of that. He said, but you couldn't have done it on my own. But if you'll listen to me, I'll bring back everything that you need in the moment that you need it. Now, go apologize and lose this fight because you're in the wrong. Even if I'm not in the wrong with my information, but I'm in the wrong with my posture. And now what happens is, not only did I not contribute like I have in many, many years before to the emotional breakdown of my wife through the impatient and mean things I would say, but I experienced a deepening, healing touch of intimacy with God that I was now able to bring back into the situation. And what's even better, if she's on that journey too, then we now get to dialogue and now our relationship is elevated from the legal status of marriage to where we're spiritual partners sharing our journey with, of God together. And that's a whole lot better than going to a seminar and trying to implement the newest steps on love languages. Not against love languages. If you'd like that sort of thing, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the application can only come from a heart that is engaged with the experience of the Spirit of God. That is how we grow. So I want to end and talk about listening to the Spirit. There's no way we'd have gotten through all of this in time for me to pick up my ribs. I want to end with the tale of two apples. I have two apples here in my hand. These apples both came from two very different sources. Let me tell you about this one first. Because in all honesty, it's prettier than this one. This one here has a lot more imperfections. In fact, if I push on it, there's some soft spaces that, I don't know, may be kind of funky if I bit into them. But this one's pretty. It's even bigger than the other one. In order for this one to be made, someone had to take a piece of God's creation that was life-giving, that was healing to the people from, who were created from it by the hand of God. And they had to dominate that piece of property. And then they had to bring destruction to that piece of property in order to make it usable. And as and it's called development is what it's called. Now, this is not anti-capitalism. Please stick with the, with the illustration. But I'm just saying that's what had to happen. And if there were, if there was wildlife habitation, that all either had to be moved or that wildlife died out so that we could put a great big factory in place. And we put a great big factory in place and, that, res and that, that runs on people, but also on machines. And those machines spit stuff out into the atmosphere that have consequences for, that can have consequences for that location. But what can happen inside that factory is that I can exalt and exploit my workers to stay for hours. And one guy just put these little stems on this apple. And one other guy, he's, 
He's spray painting the apple. Someone else has taken the raw material and manipulated and manufactured it, and they could make it aesthetically appealing. And you know what? Somebody made a big profit off of dispensing these apples because they're so aesthetically appealing, and they look great in a fruit bowl, don't they? You can control every aspect of the development of this apple. You can hire efficiency experts that will tell you how to just get 2% more efficient and in the end make more money because of that 2% efficiency. Again, I'm not condemning that. I'm just saying that all can happen in the production of this apple. But you know what I can't do with this apple? I can't be seeking refreshment, nourishment, and nutrition and grab this apple and... Oh, that's lovely. I put a bar. Linda, can I have this? Because I bit into it and it broke it. I'll buy you another one. They make lots. I can't hardly really bite into it. And if I could force myself to bite into it and eat it and swallow it, would it nourish me? No, in fact, what will happen is it will make me sick. Maybe not today, but this apple today won't keep the doctor away. What will happen is over time, I'll start to develop gastrointestinal issues. And you don't want to be around me when that happens. Or maybe there's something in the material or the dye in the paint that will slowly begin to poison my system. It will be slow and imperceptible to the point that I'll blame other things for the ailments that I'm feeling from having consumed this fake apple. And eventually, if I continue to consume it, I will die. That's apple number one. And we have this apple. Completely different source created this apple. This had some human involvement. Is God gifted gardeners to protect and cultivate it. So there is human involvement there. But you know what? Those cultivators had to submit to multiple variables that were 100% outside of their control. They couldn't control all the variables. What had to happen with this apple is that it had to go in the soil of God's creation and be obscure for a period of time. And during that obscurity, you might look at the ground and say, nothing's happening, but you would be wrong because what is happening in that obscurity is this seed is sprouting and it is developing a powerful root system that is embedded in the source of its strength and its nourishment over time. And when the time is right, that nutrient system that it's connected to will begin to sprout and then it will begin to grow and then it will have branches and leaves and eventually it will produce this fruit. Now I'll tell you, that it's, it's more complicated. I can't exert as much power and control of the production of this apple as I can this apple. And this little guy has to cooperate too because you know what this little guy has to do? <clears throat> it has to submit to the death and obscurity of the wintertime. Then it has to know how to rejoice in the celebration of the springtime. Then it knows how to yield to the rest of the summertime. And then it has to let go of what it held dear in order to submit to the transition of the fall back into winter, only to go through the seasonal cycle all over again. 
And over time, it just keeps producing fruit. Not consistent. Sometimes it's the terrible winter. Sometimes it's a lazy summer. But what it knows is this. When winter has done its work, spring will present itself. When spring has done its work, summer will present itself. And when summer has done its work, it will be time to return to the cycle again in the winter. But at the end of the day, this thing here, oh man, that's good. I avoided that soft spot. That's a good apple. It's sweet. Its juices are filling up my mouth right now. It's revving up the engines for the ribs, to be honest. And it can nourish me and it can provide me life. And this tree can gladly serve me by yielding its fruit for my nourishment. My friends, that's not just the tale of two apples. That's the tale of two different Christian spiritualities. One says, create a machine, create a complex, get more efficient, get more classes in, pump people full of information, equip them to go out and not be organic contributors to this community, but in some way see themselves as a little bit separate from it. Because you gotta be careful that you don't get tainted with the, with the unbelief or immoral activity of the greater community. And, 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 and to equip you to engage antagonistically in discussions where you know the answers and you can make your opponents look foolish because they don't know all the answers. Pump you full of information on the right things to do and then you go to apply it and you apply it in such a way that brings devastation to your marriages, your families, your friendships, your relationships. But you know what? If you get hurt and harmed and withdrawal in that process, I'm sorry, you're just collateral damage. Because as long as the machine is popping out more product and we see a bottom line growing and we can get bigger and bigger and bigger, guess what? I might get on the cover of Outreach Magazine one day, celebrated and applauded. People might pay me money to come consult and tell them how to buttress their machines if we did that. We could grow big and have a string of bodies with collateral damage behind us and never feel accountable for any of that. Or we can allow our souls to be planted in the living Christ and allow him take us on our journey, knowing that we don't get to get as mature as quickly as we want to be mature. We still fail, we still stumble, we still wrestle with the flesh, but in the process, we are learning to cultivate a rhythm of a life in which we cooperate with the energy of God. And it operates over a different energy system than the man-made fossil fuel system. It's, it's all around us. It's, it's everything can be used now to cultivate me in that, in, that, in that growth of fruit. But guess what? That's not just true of me as an individual. We as a community, we could embed ourselves in obscure places all over Carter County and just quietly and imperceptibly love the people around us in profound but quiet ways that aren't celebrated and won't get you on the cover of magazines. But over time, instead of bodies of collateral damage, people will be nourished. Some of them will just use us for the temporary nourishment and then they'll move on, but it's no concern to us. 
we're still here doing what we're called to do, rooted in one season to the next, sometimes winter, sometimes spring, sometimes summer, sometimes fall. But we just go with that process because we trust this divine gardener who's cultivating something real, not externally, but from within. And then we embed ourselves in this community and we begin to expand the presence of the love of Christ in all of these little corners. People are healed. Like I said, sometimes they'll use us, but sometimes they'll say, you know, there's something in my heart that wants to participate with a community like this and we will grow. Not fast enough to get on the cover of Outreach Magazine, but we'll grow. They, I had to do something once where they wanted the little biographical byline, and they had all these really nice things to say. I said, tell them that I am the pastor of the slowest growing church in Southern Oklahoma. Just put that in there, and I'll, if they have questions, I'll just explain what that means later on. And I, I don't know if that's true, literally, but I hope that it would be, because it means that we're taking our time to cooperate with the rhythm of God's energy, not artificially just crank out Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just proselytizing, ideology, but really inviting others to participate in the life of Christ. Now, as we come to a close, what I want you to do and to consider is how your life has been impacted by these two different tales of Christian spirituality. If it was this, and you're just about ready to walk out the door of the church forever. Let me tell you, you were produced in a man-made machine and factory of Christian ideology. You were not a follower of the living Christ. You don't have to leave to find truth. You just have to stop participating in this and instead learn how to live a completely different rhythm that empowers you to cooperate with the energy of God and he will bear fruit and he will make of your life something beautiful and magnificent. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't matter because in the process, you'd still be walking with him in the cool of the day. Huh, the tell of two apples, the tell of two spiritualities sounds an awful lot to me like the tell of two trees that we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. One tree will empower you to be in control. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other is the tree of life, and you access it by walking with your father in the cool of the day, relationally connected. The choice of your, is yours. What all is required of you is for you to be honest about which one you're participating in. And then either continue or make a change as the Spirit leads and you can keep in step with the Spirit. God bless you.